And we're back, Stripe Show Podcast. It's Masters Week. Hope you enjoyed the Monday edition there with Taylor Zarzer as we recap the Valero Texas Open. Now we lob it ahead here to Augusta National. Forecast looking pretty good, mid-80s. Maybe a little bit of rain uh, coming up. And uh, I was sitting there watching Bryson DeChambeau hit drivers on Monday at Augusta. And there's VJ Singh standing there watching with a big old smile on his face as Bryson is just ripping driver after driver. Looked like Kyle Berkshire in the long drive contest doing some speed training. So I just got to thinking, I'm writing these questions down, all these things going through my mind as Bryson does, gets me thinking. Chris Como gets me thinking. And I was like, you know, let's bring in a guy that uh, probably knows the answers to these questions because I don't have all the answers, that's for sure. And that's uh, Dr. Sasha McKenzie, who joins us from Canada. How you doing, Doc? Doing great, Travis. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. You're the professor at Department of Human Kinetics, St. Francis Xavier University up there in uh, Nova Scotia, Canada. I've got to ask you, is is the Masters as big in Canada as it is in the United States? Yeah, as big, maybe bigger, I guess. Okay. I, you know, I mean, uh, Mike Weir, um, if, if it wasn't already huge when he won, uh, certainly brought it to the forefront. But no, Ma- the Masters, I think, is big all over the world. It's Yeah, uh, it's... It's it's the one now, isn't it? You know, when I was younger, it, it was it felt like the U.S. Open was the one, and and now the U.S. Open kind of took a dip, and now the Masters has just done such a terrific job uh, of moving into that premier, the one you can't miss major championship, and it's going to be a different golf course this year um, than it was just six months ago. We're looking at fast, firm conditions, and I just I can't even imagine how far some of the drives are going to go here with Bryson DeChambeau. I know you are good friends with Chris Como. You guys have done a lot of great stuff for the game of golf. I've learned a lot from you guys. And um, I'm just curious, when you look at Bryson now and you look at this transformation and you watch his golf swing now versus, say, a year or two ago, what are a couple things that stand out to you that you're really liking that's leading to this big-time increase in club head speed and net distance down the fairway um i like his his confidence to to bring a higher level of effort to the tee i think that holds back a lot of uh tour players um now he's gotten comfortable because of all the practice he's done but um and if we're going to compare you know to his to his say his swing two three years ago um that bringing a higher level of effort and also the the transition his his transition's a lot more dynamic um, than, than it was. Uh, a lot of separation between the lower and upper bodies, getting big stretches. Um, he, he might have uh, a better transition than a lot of long drive guys, to be honest. And, and the stretch between lower and upper, uh, which allows you to swing it faster, but kind of get into that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So um, all, all the power in the golf swing comes from our body's muscles. Um and we have this, uh, you know, point in the swing at the top where the club's not moving. So we're at uh, zero speed and most of the body parts aren't moving very fast either. Um, so the, the, the force in those muscles um, are, is kind of transitioning from making a backswing direction. Now we've got to turn off, turn off those muscles and turn on the downswing muscles. Um, it's advantageous to have those muscles producing really high forces over that short period of the downswing, that point, you know, 0.2, 0.25 seconds. So it's, it's nice to be able to have those muscles 
already producing high forces before the downswing starts. Um, so um, if we can have a dynamic transition where the, 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 the more, what, what I would call the more uh, distal or more proximal segments get moving in the downswing first, that gives us a chance to, to develop high forces in the muscles that cross between those segments. So for example, uh, with Bryson's uh, obliques are amazing. Um, those muscles that stretch from the pelvis up across the torso. So when he gets that, that lower body transitioning in the downswing, that allows those muscles in the, the torso that cross the torso, the obliques to get to a really high level of force before they start to pull the, the torso around. Okay. A, a really, a really simple example is that, that I use with students is, is flicking someone's nose. So if I was to take my finger um, and say, all right, we're going to have a nose flicking contest, Travis, and I'm going to start from here and try to flick your nose without pinning my finger, right? So that, that would not really hurt, right? And that's because I'm starting this motion, my finger moving forward with zero force in those forearm muscles that are controlling my, my finger, right? They're at zero level of force as I go forward. If I pin my finger against my thumb, now... What I'm doing now is I've cranked up the level of force in those muscles that's going to snap that finger forward. So what I can do now is really get a lot of speed. Mm -hmm. So the, the dynamic transition, moving those, those uh, proximal segments first, allows those muscles to reach higher level of forces. It's the same reason why we do a counter movement before we jump. We go down before we jump up. Right. Talk about Bryson's backswing. I see, is it fair to say that he's unweighting the lead foot more? You see the left heel coming up. There's more pressure moving into the trail side. And then from there, the downswing, as you're describing, takes place. Yes. Uh, I, I think for sure he probably uh, stayed a little bit more left two or three years ago. Um, uh, the, 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 the more we can get a separation between what's called the center of pressure, that's the average spot of the vertical force uh, from the ground. So it, it, it's what most the average population would consider a weight shift. So when mm -hmm. I, when I feel what I feel under my feet, as I go back and forth is really where my center of pressure is The more force. I feel under one foot relative to the other tells me where my center of pressure is. The more separation we can get between the center of pressure and my mass, the more potential there is to, to add speed into the system. Um, so, you know, you, you can get more speed if you have two legs on the ground because you're able to shift your pressure around relative to your mass. You swing mm -hmm. with one leg on the ground, you can't get that separation. That, that's that's going to inhibit that that speed. So he's he's certainly lifting that lead heel. Lifting the, the lead heel is, is a sign that you've shifted your pressure to the trail side. Um, and it, it, it's an advantage to, to try and get more club head speed for sure. I call that drill the Humpty Dumpty, you know, kind of back and forth and yeah. Yeah, it's such kids, a, Kyle Berkshire does. We yeah. saw some kids at the drive chip and putt on Sunday. Doing awesome. actually looked exactly like Kyle Berkshire. <laughs> so good. Yeah. I loved it when that kid did that. Lydia Co put it in play three weeks ago. I texted Sean Foley and I was like, that's the coolest thing I've seen in a long time. Yeah. It was, was her doing that in a right in the middle of the tournament and busted it right down the middle. It was awesome. Like, it's like a waggle, but with your, you know, your feet, with your center of pressure. I think there's, I think we're coming to a time where you're going to see people playing golf like that off the tee. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's getting there. Uh, you know, there, there's, uh, 
the minds, I think maybe a mindset that Bryson had two or three years ago when his swing was a little more um, uh, less dynamic, we'll say less, less movement, was if I minimize the moving parts, then I can be more consistent. My perspective has always been uh, that, well, we're, we're already in, at such the extreme of moving parts in the golf swing. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we, we've got contact is so precise and we've got body parts moving all over the place um, that that really, you know, if you do something that's going to add a little bit more club head speed, it's probably not uh, not too concerning that it maybe might increase your dis- dispersion or your ability to find contact that little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's showing that. I mean, he he, he hits the, the ball as straight as anybody. At, yeah. You know, um, uh, you know, he's almost a full standard deviation ahead of uh, a lot of the guys on tour in terms of club head speed. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it really is something to watch. I can't wait to watch it this weekend and um, just this whole thing, how it evolves. We're going to see more and more of this Kyle Berkshire, Humpty Dumpty, I think, at the professional level um, with the driver where it makes sense. Let me let me pivot now to some players here in a hot topic that we hear a lot about, which is kind of the changing of knee flex. Mm particularly in the backswing. So for a right-handed golfer, that would be my, my right knee. I've always said to people, if I had to, if I had to go back and be a young player again, I would do two things different. I would turn my right hip way more than I used to. I mean, way more. Cause I used to not turn my hips, you know, yeah. and just turn my torso and my thoracic. Number two is I would get my left wrist into flexion way sooner. Uh, in the swing. So those are the two things, knowing what I know now that I would do. Let's talk about the, the, the right knee. I look at DJ, I look at speed, there's others. Those are two good examples. That right leg is straightening out to the eye, right? You, If you're looking from the target line view, you can see a window open up between the knees because sure. of that changing of knee flex. Then you go to the other side, you see a Jason Day, you see a Brooks Kepka, who's long. Um, his right knee stays flexed. You're not going to see that window opening up Jay Day's knee uh, perhaps is starting to straighten a little bit now. I don't know, but it's it, 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 it has been predominantly flexed. When you see the difference in those two, one straightening, the other not, what comes to mind as far as is there an advantage or disadvantage to either one? And then what might we see on the downswing? What do you, what do you think about when you see the difference? Very different to me in those two knee actions in the backswing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, from a club head speed perspective, the, the bigger the arc you can get your hands to travel on, the more potential for speed. Call that hand path length. So mm-hmm. the, the, the higher you can get your hands um, in the backswing, the more potential for speed. One of the, the segments that allows that is, is pelvis rotation. You're rotating your hips. If, if you keep the trail leg flexed, that's really going to limit your, your amount of pelvis rotation. Um, so then you won't be able to move your hands through, uh, a range of motion. That's as big as you could, if you freed up that, uh, that trail, Mm -hmm. trail knee flex. Um, I think that some golfers feel, um, more control. Um, if they keep that trail knee flex historically, it's, it's very interesting to trace where that came from. I look at all the, the best golfers in the past. Um, I shouldn't say all, but pretty much everyone that I can think of, um, like a Jack Nicklaus, a Tom Watson, Johnny Miller, when they were playing with tiny driver heads. Um, I don't see any of them really maintaining that that flex in the trail knee, big, long, flowing swings. Right. Um, and I think um, 
the, the concept of uh, this, I don't know if the viewers are familiar with it, but uh, X Factor Stretch, um, it was uh, Jim McLean, I think, made it pretty popular. Yeah. And I, I don't know if he would tell you to keep the trail knee flexed. I think um, maybe that's where uh, people took it themselves. Um, so the idea was, hey, we're going to get more stretch between the hips and the upper body if I don't allow those those hips to rotate. You know, I just read some old Michelle Wee tips in Golf Digest or Golf Magazine, and she was talking about maintaining trail knee flex and, mm -hmm. and allowing there to be that, that stretch. Um, and the thought was that will add speed getting that stretch. But you can still... Uh, allow that right knee to flex, still get a ton of pelvis rotation, hip rotation in the yeah. backswing, um, like a Jordan Spieth, and still get that stretch, yeah. right? It, it just means that you're going to rotate the, the torso more, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's the relative rotation between the torso and, and the hips or the upper body and the lower body. Um, so, I, I, so I don't think you're going to get more speed by limiting the pelvis rotation by keeping the trail knee flexed. Right. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. You might feel more comfortable. You might feel more, more accurate. It's probably going to put a little more stress on the lower back. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're trying to still get your hands to the same position, if you're trying to still get the same amount of rotation in the upper body, that needs to come from somewhere. I like it to come from the pelvis. I like to see a little bit more movement there. Um, uh, and, and what muddies the water too, if you look at club head speed, is that everybody's got so much different potential. Bryson right now, could keep his right knee completely flexed, have zero pelvis rotation, and still uh, have 125 mile an hour club head speed. Um, and if we didn't know what we know, but the fact that he just, you know, uh, Arnold Palmer, I think he hit 140 off the tee, um, we would say 125, that's crazy fast. He's mm -hmm. doing that because he's keeping his trail knee flexed. Well, no, what happens if he loosens it up a bit? Well, now we're at 140. So um, I think... Um, for those that keep their trail knee flex, the, the, it's probably because they feel like they'll, they'll have more control. So it's interesting when I teach amateurs, right? And let's, let's pare it down here a little bit to the amateurs. We can learn from tour players, but you know, we're not going to, we're not going to turn like a DJ and those kinds of things. Right. But when I get in there and I'm wiring most players and I'm teaching them how to turn that right hip, because as we get older, you know, we lose, range right everybody's kind of going in the hips aren't turning they're trying to turn their upper their spine kind of stays down in flexion and the swing gets really short and then we see these these habits so it's interesting as i kind of get them to turn that hip you know now the spine feels like man i kind of extend almost like elongate a little bit and, and now the range of motion just really increases for them their hand path and they feel a little out of control but the net effect as they get comfortable with it and they look at it, they're like, wow, I don't think my backswing has ever been that long in that structure. I'm lengthening way more people out than I'm shortening it up. And I'm doing exactly what we're talking about here in this changing a knee flex and then adding a little spine extension, which really blows people's mind to think that their spine goes back as they're turning on this inclination. But yet you show it to them and they're just like, wow, this is a game changer. And I think, single handedly could be one of the most important thing amateurs need to learn because it kind of just, it lengthens them out and it gives them some longevity to the game. hundred percent. Um, I, I do a lot of, um, uh, shoe testing, club testing in the lab. Uh, 
And the population that I draw from, a lot of those individuals are between the ages of 50 and 70. And, um, you know, as a kind of a, hey, thanks for coming in and, and allowing me to, to use you to, you know, as a lab rat. Um, mm-hmm. I'll say, hey, you know, I can give you some, you know, some tips. You got five minutes, hang around. And the, the number one thing I tell them to do a lot of the times is, is get that lead leg lifted, get that pelvis freed up. Um, I track strokes gained. That's the number one metric that I use in the lab to say, mm-hmm. hey, was this driver performing better than that driver with these shoes, better than those shoes for you? Um, I do a little strokes gain calculation. And um, I'll quickly say, hey, you know, we got a little bit of time. Let's, let's whack another 14 drives. And I'll compare these 14 to the last 14 you hit um, using strokes gained. And yeah, dispersion will increase a little bit. But if you're driving the ball, you know, a lot of these guys are hitting it 200 yards off the tee. That would be a good drive for them. Um, and now they've gone up to 220, and maybe they got one or two more balls in the rough. But that extra distance is washing out that increased dispersion. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Such a it's a, such an important um, factor, and there's a chain reaction to it. You know, as far as how the body then can work through the impact, which we'll we'll touch on here a little bit. But I want to I want to pivot to this wrist angle here in the lead wrist. I was at coach's camp. The last time Andrew Rice had it in person, you were there. John Sinclair was there. I love listening to your guys' reporting on 3D and testing because not all of us have all this stuff, as you know. It's yeah, uh, but it's awesome that you guys share it and and you're so open uh, to sharing it. John Sinclair made a comment, and I thought it was really interesting. And I want to talk about this, and I think I heard it the right way. And that is in his data that. Uh, John Sinclair down in Texas, um, you know, does a lot of data research, has a very robust um, database of of tour players. And probably maybe the best. Yeah, yeah, maybe the best. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And the lead risk, he was saying, look, no matter what the lead risk condition is at the top. OK, let's say you're a lot extended. Let's say you're slightly extended. Let's say you're flexed a little bit, whatever. But whatever range it is at the top, no matter what your DJ um, your Spieth, your Day, your uh, Mickelson, you know, I'm kind of just slowly extending. Webb Simpson. Webb Simpson, yeah. Uh, that no matter where you are in transition, best players in the world, that lead risk, no matter where you are, is going to work more towards flexion in transition, best players in the world. Yeah, I think the only player that I've seen not do that, and I think John would agree, would be Hovland. Um, so, yes, outside mm-hmm. of that, <laughs> you're right. Um, yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. So it's interesting when you when you start getting in there and you're in your you start putting your hands on these students, you know, and you're like, okay, look, this is flexion and extension, you know, and then and then they're you know they're starting to feel that, and now all of a sudden, you know, the shaft's starting to pitch a little bit, the face is starting to get itself prepared a little bit more, and you know that's a game changer for the amateur player, and and again, feels different. But that's a big statement. Every player, with the exception of Hovland, no matter that wrist is taking on more, it is more is taking on more flexion. And yet, I think the perception so much is 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 pulling down, right? And, and as we pull, normally as we pull down, that lead wrist moves more into extension. Yeah, which has a lot of pitfalls to it. Talk about some of the advantages that you see with this lead wrist getting into flexion early. And what that means to shaft face and what a player can maybe just do more instinctively on the way through. Yeah, I, I think it, um, 
if if anybody's YouTubing at home, um, if you you know look at John Rom or Brooks Kepka from a down the line position, they have this really. Um, so you get this idea of what lead wrist flexion is. They have these very distinct kind of mm -hmm. moves where they they flex. Just so you have a, a yeah. good visual of when this occurs in the in the golf swing. Those are two good guys to look at from a down the line perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's you know generally accepted um, that it it helps square the face early. Um, you know, and I think if, if you look at DJ, it seems like his face is kind of, you know, never because he's so flexed, um, you call that, you know, a really shut face. Um, um, but it, it's kind of it, 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 it leaves the amateur with a, who slices with a feeling that, OK, maybe I don't need to do this last minute panic flip to square. Mm -hmm. um, hey, this is already if I do a little bit of that lead wrist flexion in the downswing, that's I'm kind of already starting to to square the face a little bit. Um, and, and that helps. It also helps, can help position a little bit the, the center mass of the club to a difference. It encourages more of a, um, a flatter kind of a swing motion, um, uh, that, that can actually help square the face as well from a completely different mechanism. Um, and I, I think that's what you, you, you see the guys like Brooks Kepka and uh, John Rom doing. I think it puts that shaft in a little flatter plane, um, makes it a little bit easier to deliver from the inside. Yeah, and that in the COM center of the mass, that club kind of laying down just a little bit, kind of getting back behind, right? Right, and then from there, just now the body's like, okay, I've got it prepared. Now instinctively, I can I can kind of rotate and hit it, and as you said, not feel the need to have to compensate because no matter what the pattern is, everybody figures it out. <laughs> yeah, you know, like like they could have a ton of lead wrist extension or cupping. You know, a lot of players feel that cupping and they, and they, and they kind of pull down and they really feel that. And then it's like, well, now the face is wide open. So like, if I don't change that now, I've got to come over the top or I've got, or I got to aim left or, I, you know, I got to do something or I got to stand the handle up and let it go, but they figure it out and they can get the ball around the green. And it suggests to some degree, a certain level of play, you know, it's like, you can, you can kind of say, all right, you look at that. Here's kind of what you're going to see. And this is normally the level of play that yep. I would see from that particular pattern. Now we know there's outliers. We know Mickelson carries that wrist down a little bit longer than most. Greatest set of hands probably to ever play the game. Leishman would be in that category. But you see guys, this is a commonly, this is a very commonly thing worked on like Patrick Reed is trying to prepare that face earlier coming down now, you know, and he's doing it more in the right hand, Sasha, like bending the right mm -hmm. hand back more. Is that something that you go to right wrist, right elbow and bending that back to help flex out that lead wrist? Yeah. I, I think in terms of face control, uh, that the trail hand is probably going to be trail arm is probably gonna be more, more dominant. Um, if, 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 if you're trying to, uh, hit a one handed shot and really manipulate the face, it's going to be a lot easier to do it with the trail hand. That's one way to get a sense of, right, that trail hand is pretty uh, pretty important. So it, it makes a ton of sense to me to think, all right, I'm going to focus on on what the trail hand is doing just as much as the as the lead. Yeah. Especially for weaker grip players, mm. um, uh, you know, players who uh, you can't see I'm, where my camera's at. It's kind of tough for me to, to demonstrate. I'm a lefty. Yep. But if, you know, if I have a strong top hand grip, um, uh, this doesn't apply so much, but if you're a weak, have a weak top hand, that ability to go into extension through impact is critical to developing club head speed. So if you're already extended, 
as you come down, that's a, that's a, a, a way that we're not going to be able to get speed into the club. So it makes sense to be going into flexion so that now you're in a position where you can be extending through impact. If it's already extended, then you're, you're kind of robbing yourself of a, yeah. of a way to get, get speed into the club. Yeah, because if you're carrying that down, that extension, you know, what you see, it depends really like a better, a, a higher handicap, you know, obviously they're going to, they're going to kind of throw it out and then they get, they're going to get that path working across them pretty excessively. And they'll either leave the face and drag it, you know, and they pass left face, right. We've seen that. Or they'll, you know, maybe kind of shut it down a little bit and they don't have to aim as left quite as much. The better player will pull it down a little bit steep and from the inside, you know, and then they'll stand that handle up and let it out right. and they'll hit draws, you yeah. know, and that's that better player. So and, and that pattern, although I'm exaggerating, is a little bit of speed of what you see him in his rehearsal swings right now. And you see him kind of taking it back a little deeper. The shaft's a little more stacked up. So now the shaft can lay down a bit earlier yeah. and he can rotate and that handle doesn't feel the need to maybe want to elevate a little bit where maybe in a subtle way, he was a bit steep perhaps in transition and then felt the need to stand it and let it go. And there's your hooks. Certainly, uh, yeah, 2019, 2020, for sure. 2016, I actually, uh, you know, was, in my opinion, a slightly different swing. It looked like he came a lot more from the inside, was a little more comfortable. I I think he's found some different feels or different rehearsals to get back to that uh, 2016 delivery. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like Dufter's helped him, you know, with that. Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, from a, uh, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Duffner's swing. It's so simple. Yeah. Um, I love where, you know, I love that uh, there's no, the, the trail elbow stays on the side of the body. He gets up, he's got the shaft laid off and he just turns. Um, but it can be a bit limiting in terms of trying to uh, generate club head speed. So, um, you know, that it, 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 you know, he could still play on tour for sure. But uh, if you're trying to hit at 122, 123, get the club head speed up that high getting that, you know, trail arm off the side, getting the hands a bit higher is going to help a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different game now, right? Duffner and those guys, they're kind of Mike Weir, Luke Donald, you know, they kind of, the time kind of passed them a little bit. You hate to say it, but they just, it's such a distance era now and the way these guys hit it, um, you know, it's, it's hard to keep up, but Duffner, yeah, I agree. He, I do like his swing and I think you can see a little Duff in it and the way he's, you know, kind of doing his gyrations, but you can see it's evident to me, like it's this feeling of, you know, like you can see this early late, you know, early this way and then get out of the way left and be more instinctive and rotate, which is really where I want to ask you next is, and I was talking with Jeff Smith who works with Victor Hovland, who we mentioned. And I asked Jeff, I said, how do you teach rotation through impact? And he's like, you know, I just try to get people in a position where they can just rotate and just have that freedom through impact. And yeah, there's some things that you can do to facilitate that, but I just kind of let it go and kind of frame it and then let them rotate and be instinctive and, you know, get the shaft in the face where they want it. Um, Talk about the ground a little bit and how the feet are interacting from a rotational standpoint, you know, and being able, Sasho, to really, I don't know, open up, right? That's kind of the key buzzword, open up through impact. But the reality is there's got to be some, there's got to be some good things happening before that for a player to instinctively just 
rotate in it, what looks like in many ways, these guys, when they get it going, they look like they're trying to hit as hard as they can because the shaft and the face are in such good positions and they know that instinctively. And then they just get out of the way, but talk about the feet and interacting with the ground from a rotational standpoint. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I certainly think that, that I've seen lots of players. I'm sure you have, especially um, athletic baseball players who can almost rotate too much. Mm. They, they get too much, what I would call angular momentum in the system and the club just never catches up. Um, so when we interact with the ground, one of the things we're trying to do is the term that I would use is we're trying to get angular momentum into the system. We're trying to rotate our body. We're trying to get speed, angular speed into the system. Um, and in reference to this conversation, it's about pushing, mostly pushing and pulling on the ground. So um, in the downswing, you probably can't see my, no, uh, my I can see plates here. Can you hear me okay still? Yeah, I got you. Um, so I'm a, I'm, I'm a lefty, so maybe that's going to mess people up. But that front foot, maybe I'll pretend I'm – actually, which way do I look? Am I flipped in no, this? No, do it. Do it like um, – do it like you're left-handed. Okay. Um, let's see if I can uh, – if I can just maybe tilt this down a bit so I think you can see my uh, – yeah. Yeah, there, there my, you go. Perfect. There are my force plates. Yep, perfect. Uh, on the ground. If I can get that a little bit – we're a little bit uh, not super straight, but there we go. Yep. Um, so if I'm trying to uh, send the ball in that direction in the downswing, I want to actually be trying to push this lead foot towards the target line in this direction, Right. So I want to be applying a force actually down into the ground and out that way. And my back foot, I'm actually trying to pull back behind me. And by doing that, that's going to, if I do those motions, if I try to push this lead foot towards the target line, that's a big part of what's going to create that rotation and get open. Um, and you can see that there's actually not a high correlation between hip speed and club speed because I can actually rotate my hips really fast without generating any ground reaction forces. So right now, I'm, I'm moving my hips quite quickly while I'm rotating them fast, but you wouldn't see that in the ground. Um, when you, 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 you can, even though you can have fast hips, it doesn't mean that it's actually creating speed that's going to get out to the club. It's better to be able to push into the ground and have those, that, that speed go not just into the hips, but also into the whole body, right? So there's a, there's a difference there between just, hey, I can spin my hips around as fast as I want, that's not going to be reflective, it reflected in the ground, and it's also not going to help me get speed out to the club. I want to get that hip rotation speed from pushing that way into the ground, which is going to drive that leg back up into the pelvis and push it back behind me. It's that pushing and pulling on the ground. That's what LPGA uh, players um, actually have faster hips than PGA Tour players. Hmm. Um, but arguably they wouldn't, uh, have the same level of, of ground reaction forces. Right. And it goes back to, I'll, I'll try to bring it full circle now to this changing in knee flex. When I notice when, you know, people turn and they don't f lose flexion in that trail knee, right. They just keep it locked in flexed. They, they have the, seems like more the appetite than to kind of launch and push off like almost like a shot putter, Sasha, you right. know, and then, which kind of goes against, like they might launch and spin, but it feels like the interaction with the ground is not as strong. And they, and they get a bit lateral, and then they take on more side bend mm. with the better players. Not, yep. you know, the, the lower, higher handicaps will kind of, everything will tend to kind of go ahead. 
better players will kind of launch laterally and then they'll kind of, you know, they'll take on more side bend, which reminds me a lot of my swing, you know, um, if, of that, you know, kind of turn the upper, not the lower, a little lateral in the pelvis, decent amount of side bend, not a ton of shaft lean because I tend to carry the extension a little bit, you know, so I kind of let it out a little. Now, as you teach that, you know, kind of more up right side pelvis higher, you, you tend to almost get this sensation of kind of sitting a bit, almost kind of almost sinking into the ground, more pressure into the ground, which then you can use the ground kind of just how you were describing there. Is that, is that accurate to say the parallels of those based off the first discussion we had, which was the changing of knee flex? Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, that certainly that uh, a squat into the lead leg, to, you know, have, having that, having a little bit more, having that lead knee flex increase mm -hmm. as the, as the back swings ending and, you know, just into the start of the downswing to be, to be adding a little bit of flex in that lead knee and then flipping it around. Right. So getting that, um, that's also, uh, you know, getting a stretch in the, in those muscles that, um, do a little counter move in that lead leg. If we can first add flex, that's going to enable us to generate more force quickly to extend out of it. And extending that lead leg is really important not only to help us rotate, um, but also uh, increase that vertical force as well. Well, I could ask a million more questions on the swing, but I won't. Let me, let me, um, actually, no, I am. I'm going to ask one more here on, on, on the swing and that I'm going to go back to club head speed because you've designed something, a device that helps with club head speed. Tell us about it. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, uh, you know, I've been working with a lot of tour players over the you know past five or six years on, protocols to increase their speed. Um, and one of the things that I would do is I would kind of like just uh, hack my way into being able to adjust weights on their club, lead tape, different things. I had the machine shop guy make a few products, sent one to Jason Day a few, uh, few years ago, because I want to be able to finally manipulate the weight in the club. And um, uh, finally, I was like, you know what, maybe if, if I'm trying, this is such a hassle for myself, um, to try and work with players. Uh, wouldn't it be great if I actually had a product that I could use that looked a little bit better than lead tape? So I teamed up with Marty Jertson uh, at Ping. Yep. So he designed this. It's called the called the Stack. Um, mm -hmm. He's the, the engineer behind it. So we've got these different weights that you can slide on um, and uh, pairs with an app. So I put my my own programming, the same program that I use with, uh, with tour players, in the app. Um, so you have the, the hardware. You have the app. It tells you exactly how to train, what weights to put on, how much to rest, tracks your speed. Um, it's yeah, called the so stack. Called the stack. The stacksystem.com. Nice. Stacksystem.com. Yep. Yeah, go check it out. That's that. That's really cool. This is where everything's going. I mean, these the speed training, um, you start adopting some of the things that we're talking about uh, into the swing to create more speed. You're doing this. I mean, you can't help but swing the club faster. I've swung the club as fast as I ever had my entire life right now. I'm 43 yeah. years of age, but I'm, you know, I'm going about it more educatedly. And one of the big reasons why is a lot of the research that you've done in others. And it's just, it's fun. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's a fun time right now for golf. It's just seems to be really taking off, um, in so many different ways. And here we are now with the master Spieth wins with his comeback and, I'm just, I'm really curious, Sasha, to, to, to see what the golfer is going to look like in the next 10 to 15 years. I, I really am. I mean, I'm just, I sit here and I think to myself, what is that person going to look like? And I, I think this 
you know, back and forth, uh, Humpty Dumpty. But I think we're going to be in a different spot. Sure, there's going to be a lot of the same things happening, and you got to get the ball in the hole. But in the way of speed creation, I think we're going to see some really interesting and creative things um, coming in the next 10 to 15 years in the way the tour player looks and plays the game, and we're seeing it with Bryson right now. Yeah, and it, I'm I'm really uh, interested to see what happens with the uh, you know change in rules to the equipment if the RA and USGA yeah. decide to limit things because it could have unintended consequences. I mean, maybe we get to keep some of those older courses in rotation. I'm fine with still playing those older courses. You know, I'm yeah. going to get worried when people start shooting 40 and 32, and then we can't separate out um, you know who's actually playing better that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I, I mean. <sighs> there's so much wiggle room. I don't really care if everybody goes out and shoots 50, that's going to be exciting. And it's not, it's probably not going to happen. Right. But so things change it. And who cares if the, if they shoot 58s on some course, doesn't make it obsolete. It still uh, can be interesting. Um, But I think those rule changes potentially could have unintended consequences. And all of a sudden now players like uh, Bryson DeChambeau have an even bigger advantage um, on a lot of courses. Uh, so I think the PGA tour steps in before we get to that point. You know, I, I think, you know, as far as some of the rules, I, I just, we could talk about that for, you know, another hour or so in the yeah. rules, but I, I just think the game right now is cruising way too good. You know, we don't have it a pro- is, there's no problem. There's no, it, there problem. isn't, there's no problem. It is going as good as it's ever been in my career in golf, which has been since I've graduated in college in 99, this is the best I've ever seen in the game right now. The best I've ever seen the game. And I, and I say that and tiger's not playing, you know, yeah. like it just, it, that's the way it feels to me. Now I know the PJ tour hemorrhage money because they couldn't have fans. I get that, that, that they would be like, wait a minute, <laughs> we got to get some fans back in there. I mean, I understand that, but the fans are coming back. The PGA tour looks healthy. You look at the LPGA tour. Um, you know, these, these American women are playing some good golf right now as well. And I think that's a positive. They're moving in the right direction. I just think recreationally with the amateurs, it just feels really good right now. And the momentum people coming back to the game. I just, I just don't think you can do anything to it right now. Just don't touch it. Leave it alone. Let's, let's, let's keep moving forward here because we've got great momentum. I mean, we really do. I'm with you. Yeah. Hey, Sasha, um, thank you so much for your time. I I appreciate it. I look forward to, um, seeing you at the next uh, training session and uh, I've learned a ton from you. I thank you and um, appreciate, I know my audience will love this podcast. Let's take a second to talk about the guys and girls over at Encore Golf. Encore has earned a reputation of having the most cutting edge technology in their golf balls that the industry has seen in quite some time. Their team in Buffalo, New York is changing the script of golf technology through the perimeter weighted designs use of high-density particles, and even a nano-transitional layer in their latest creation, which offers players enhanced accuracy and control for every shot on the course and extreme velocity off the tee. They already have their award-winning Elixir and Avant 55 golf balls, but the new Vero X1 is the highest performance ball to date with their full suit of golf balls. They are transforming the game for players of all skill levels, visit EncoreGolf.com slash Travis Fulton for more details about their products that are revolutionizing the game. Now back to the Stripe Show podcast. 